missing connection to science night. Please stand by. Welcome back to another edition of the Science Night Podcast. My name is James, and with me, as always, is Steffi. Hey. And Jason. Hello. And joining us in our fourth seat, we have our friend and yours, Matt Sowers. Matt, thank you for joining us. I'm very glad to be here. Oh, we are so happy to have that voice on this feed. It is sit back and relax, ladies and gentlemen. You're going to be... You're going to be lulled into a sense of scientific euphoria. And tonight, we're going to talk about the situation that is unfolding in East Palestine, Ohio. But first, let's get to know our guest a little bit better. Matt, you are here. You are guesting with us today. And we're going we're gonna to get to know you a little bit better in this little first segment. So why don't you tell us a little bit about what it is that you do? Professionally... I'm a mechanical engineer by trade. Uh, I held in the state of Indiana for about 10 years a professional engineer's license. In the world of mechanical engineering, of course, it doesn't do very much, but unless you're in the world of HVAC, which I was not. But uh, And then uh, I have spent probably 30-odd years doing mechanical design for various uh, electronics and medical manufacturers. So anything from handheld to desktops uh, size electronics, uh, whether I worked at an audio communications company where we made stereos and CD players and things like that, all the way to medical devices such as blood glucose monitoring systems. And unprofessionally, well, I don't want to call it unprofessionally, <laughs> in your free time. In real life. Yeah, in real life, what what are, what are some of the other fun things that you do? Oh, yeah. Uh, my number one time sink right now, uh, and probably has been for the majority of my life, is Dungeons & Dragons, yeah. followed uh, very, very closely by card games like Magic the Gathering. So I'm not just a nerd professionally, I'm a nerd socially, and I've been doing the nerd thing since long before it was cool. If Matt's voice sounds familiar, it's because we featured him on one of our, one of our many Gen Con specials, and... It's, it's kind of like my favorite moment at Gen Con when we get to actually get some like D&D traps that have real physics and thought and background thrown into them. So I can't say I'm an evil DM. I try to be a nice DM, but I do make traps that are not just mechanically possible, but things you could probably build. Uh, you should mm-hmm. not. Of course, that's the yeah. that's the point. <laughs> it's good that you threw that caveat in there. <laughs> I really I enjoyed that segment so much. I keep talking to people whenever I run into them and they're like, I do d and I'm like, you need to listen to this physics of traps. <laughs> I don't want to be like the standard guy, but that should be a podcast, right? It's a trap. It's, it's a trap. Oh, for sure. So actually, that's interesting because the first time I ever met Matt was when he gave a talk similar to that several years ago at Gen Con. <laughs> Um, this was before the Science Night days. This was before anything other than a makeshift panel thrown together at the last second by Indiana Sciences, um, which is different than the way it is now. There's a lot more thought put into it um, and a lot more effort put into it. But I have been fascinated by Matt's understanding of physics and his ability to bring it to people like me who know nothing about physics um, in a way that's accessible, right? I mean, I'm not a huge Dungeons and Dragons player. I have played in the past. I enjoy it. I, I definitely understand it. And I love to watch people play. 
but for me it's not something i've done but that those traps would make me want to play <laughs> they would it's a great creative outlet i mean i'm not gonna lie i got into dungeon dungeons and dragons mostly because uh, some people had wanted to play i started playing in like 1982 and then like 1985 i started doing the dungeon master thing because my friends were like hey uh, i want to play and you did it last time and it was fun uh, it's okay. So that was, that was like the criteria. And then of course, for those of you who are my fellow perma DMS, you know, <laughs> you, you get to run the show, but you almost never get to play people like, but you're so good at it. It's like, you know what, if you practiced as much as I did, you might also have this skill. And to me, this stuff is like, it's a creative way to apply the physics that I know. And this is design engineering, right? I mean, you follow along the scientists who are the people who, uh, from, from my point of view, professionally, uh, you know, real scientists such as yourselves out there going and being the monkeys that climb the trees to know what the perfect sticks look like. And then, uh, the engineers are collecting the sticks that you drop onto the ground. We already know they're perfect. Somebody's already figured this out. I just have to figure out how to do something with it. So uh, I guess it's the difference between uh, <laughs> yeah, explaining like center of percussion on a baseball bat versus just handing some pro a bat, uh, you know, a, a bat that you just turned of wood and a bucket of balls and say, find the sweet spot for me. Those guys are going to do a lot faster and it's a lot dirtier, but their answer is just as accurate. So that's to me, as far as what you're looking for in engineering, the first swing should get you within 70% of the ballpark to extend the analogy. Second swing gets you 90%. You're 95% on the third swing and every swing thereafter is just creeping up on that six Sigma value, right? I like, I love the fact that we just talked about baseball and I wasn't the one who thought about it. In my head, I was like, it's, right? we're always going to get back to baseball, huh? We are. <laughs> I know. It was, it was not me this time. It wasn't me this time. I love it. But let's just point out pitchers and catchers have reported. And they so reported. spring training has started. Yeah. So now we're going to, we're going to transition to our second, our second uh, internal podcast where we just talk about the Phillies and Royals uh, uh, prospects for this season. And uh, Matt and Steffi can just kind of tune out for two hours. And then I wait for Great British Bake Off to come back on yeah, yeah. and then I start talking <laughs> about that. I guess RuPaul's Drag Race show. is back on right now. So. Ooh. Listen, the world works in seasons. Whether it's, you know, seasons because of changes in, uh, you know, our distance from the sun or the tilt of the earth relative <laughs> rather. Or if Bryce Harper's hitting dingers. Right. Or if Bryce Harper's <laughs> is hitting dingers, right? Or, you know, or Patrick Mahomes is winning MVPs. Oh, man. Can I jump in with a couple of questions? <laughs> okay. Why yeah, why engineering? Why'd you go into engineering? And also, you've worked on many different types of devices. What is your favorite one? If I could make toys for a living, I totally would. Like, if I could work at Lego and just make Legos, oh that gosh. do Lego designs, that would be brilliant. But yeah. they already have a fleet of mechanical engineers and you know, to move to Sweden, they're like, hey, what yeah. can you do that no other Swede can do? And the answer is I can't. So I mean, do they have a voice of Magic the Gathering? Yeah. They look for quirky people. If you've ever met any Swedes, they're a quirky lot. But you, know. you can speak in a baritone. I've never heard a Swede do that. There you go. They have that upward inflection over there. So the thing I think I was just most proud of in terms of what I had invented were things that were common, simple things that other humans had overlooked. Oh. Right. You know, like... Yeah. So much of engineering is like, can I complicate this thing to the point of awesomeness? And it's like, no, yes. it's too complicated, right? I mean, these guys figured it out, right? I mean, they've got, what, one, two, three buttons 
The fourth one may be on the front and a switch, and then it does millions of things because you have these software buttons that don't really exist on the phone. They're just a revolutionary thought process in user interface design. That's not engineering. That's art. You know? And so that intersection between art and engineering is absolutely the stuff I value the most. I love it. I love that you used your phone uh, as an example because plasma physics is the whole reason in fusion energy why your phone's so small. So thank you. That's pretty cool. Should I say thank you or you're welcome? You're welcome as well. <laughs> <laughs> why engineering? Um, I didn't know what I wanted to do when I was in high school. So when I went into high school, like my whole life, uh, my favorite thing of all time on PBS to watch regularly was uh, Jacques Cousteau, uh, Undersea Journey, I think was the name of the show. It was just brilliant. So I'm like, the dude swims underwater and they just find all this cool stuff swimming around down there and living. And this looks so cool to me. So my whole life going up into high school, I want to do science-y something and I, I want to do marine biology. And then I took a biology class my freshman year in high school and said, I do not want to do biology. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I have incredible yep. respect for the people who do biology and chemistry because before you can even get to do your art, there is so much of it that is learning what somebody else has already figured out. And as it turns out, what other people have figured out is massive and it continues to grow exponentially daily. I mean, we're still discovering stuff that's here on our own planet that has been there for a long time. So that's kind of unfathomable to me. And uh, so I, I didn't know what to do. So uh, at high school, I can tell you in the late 80s in Indiana, job counseling looked a lot like, well, what do you want to do the rest of your life? Right. That was the typical question you got. And I was like, I don't know, not, not work. <laughs> by this time, you're already like delivering pizzas or something like that because you've got a car that you need to feed gas into and stuff like that. So you're like, I just want to not have to do any of this. How do I play Dungeons and Dragons professionally for a living? And the answer was I'd have to wait until possibly the year 2012 or later for the people who have made a career out of that. And uh, I, I guess I either missed that boat or maybe I need to come back to that boat. I don't know. So my dad was like, well, why don't you consider engineering? And I said, well, why? And he's like, and he was a business guy. He was, uh, uh, had, had his master's in finance and, um, my mom was in uh, financial planning. So basically sales and marketing type people. My dad was like, why don't you, why don't you go into engineering? You're a real smart kid. And uh, those engineers sleep real well at night. And what I didn't understand was what he was talking about in the business world, where it was already known that if you were on the business side, there were probably some unscrupulous decisions one might have to make in the interest of making money. Uh, we'll probably get to that later in this show. There are unscrupulous decisions being made in the business world, and I, it, he, would rec he recognized that aspect of my personality that would not tolerate that, that variance of human, humanity with reality. And I did find in engineering when I began studying it that uh, it was really hard. The first year freshman at Purdue was like, I'm going to call it high school plus, like for all of us who took honors classes or AP classes or whatever, uh, it was high school plus for us. And then you started learning engineering. But between my freshman and sophomore year, I wasn't sure if I was going to do engineering, but I had, um, you know, my first internship. We had a co-op program at uh, Purdue. For those of you who know people go to, going to Purdue or thinking about going to Purdue, do the co-op program a thousand percent. It is the reason I went into engineering. It was not at all because of what they were teaching in a classroom. It was because when I went in industry without having an education in what engineering was, I could still productively do engineering things. 
And that was the pull, right? So applied science. So to me, the application of science was, was the thing that kind of set the hook. The fact that I could invent and do stuff without actually knowing what the hell I was doing. I could do it by feel. And the truth is, is that we learn the physics of the universe around us by feel. And in the attraction for mechanical engineering there, and specifically was you're born with all the sensory equipment you need to do your job, right? I mean, you don't... You don't have to, I don't know, I don't need a voltmeter to measure a thing because electricity isn't a thing that humans generate like that. But man alive, I can feel a ball bounce. And you watch kids doing physics stuff all the time. They swing on swings, they bang balls, they smack pots and pans of different sizes and tink their glasses with their silverware and stuff like that. And, you know, while it might be a little annoying at first, you have to realize what they're doing is they're building the applied science. Everything that you do that transmits energy, matter, momentum, anything that you can think of that moves a thing from one place to another that you are doing is physics. And the better you get it applied physics, the better off you are. So if you're digging post holes, if you've ever used a post hole digger versus an auger, those are two different, two very different machines that use two very different principles about how to just get dirt out of the ground. So here's a really practical problem. I need a hole. And so I need to get the dirt out of the hole. Well, what if there's different kinds of dirt? Well, that's like civil engineering. And then, you know, right. And then how, how do I get people on the work site to do and how much dirt do we need to move? And that's logistics, right? That's a, a systems engineering. So you see all these aspects of engineering that are just with the stuff we're born with. And I love the fact that I could lift the hood on my car, look for the broken thing and go, I guess that's where the broke part is, you know, with circuits and stuff, you got to probe them with other electronics to just make them go. Or if you're an astronomer, it's not like you can go grab a piece of star and put it under a slide and look at it, right? You got to look at these giant balls of gas from really far away and make a whole load of assumptions about how it works. So once you have an idea about what the uh, application is for the science. I think that's what sets the hook in the engineer. I think for scientists, at least now with the experience I have, I think scientists value the discovery. And I think engineers value the genesis and the analysis. So that generating a system is a thing I like to do, uh, like filling that blank piece of paper. And there's other engineers who take something that an engineer like myself has designed and they try to figure out how bad it can get or how you break it or what's wrong with it or whatever. And we need those two halves of that same engineering brain. You always learn how to build a thing. You always learn how to analyze what's wrong with the thing. Some people in the world of engineering, again, you tend to kind of gravitate to one pole or the other where you do a lot more analysis or you do a lot more design. And I just really uh, enjoy the design side. I love how you said everything goes back to physics. So thank you for <laughs> saying that. <laughs> uh, it's true. Um, even talking, so I work with a bunch of very, very smart clinical chemists. And there is a point where they shrug and they're like, well, that part's physics, right? So I was like, how does this reaction go? Like, so the, the common look is this... Uh, look at glucose oxidase and glucose dehydrogenase. And these are the substances that we use to try to figure out how much glucose is in your blood uh, without actually taking a deciliter of blood and putting it in a centrifuge and spinning out the serum and, you know, pouring that on the coffee filter and then weighing the actual glucose in the blood, which is what they would have done in the fifties and sixties to try to take that. Now you can like bleed on a strip or something like that. And it does this chemical reaction, but 
it's a cups and balls game, right? And so as soon as the cups and balls are all full, the reaction's done. And I was like, what makes the cups and balls go? And they shrug and they go physics, you know, or what makes this thing turn into H2O2 temporarily in my body and the interstitial tissue to turn it back into the substance I need to measure. Uh, and then eat, it, I make this reaction, eat that H2O2 so we don't have a whole bunch of hydrogen peroxide floating around in your blood because that's bad. And uh, how, how do we do that? And they're like, it's at the end of the day, it's quantum tunneling. And I'm like, Okay, cool, man. I, yeah. So for me, there's this physics thing and I can stop with Newtonian stuff. Right. And that's the beautiful part of my job is that I draw a line at Isaac Newton and I'm done. I don't have to go further than that. Yeah. There's dudes who do that, right? They put stuff up in space, their satellites, they got to go a little bit further than Newton to get stuff to go. I don't. I, I, I'm here on Earth. I'm at standard temperature and pressure. And if I'm goofing around with anything like pressurized containers that people might store chemicals in that are transporting from one state to another, there's physics I can figure out that are pretty straightforward. That's no different than a baseball player swinging a bat. It is a very crude sort of thing where you build it and try it. And you build it and try it. And you learn that kind of science. The scientific method then to me becomes this very sort of practical, physical touchy feely sensory thing. And, uh, as it turns out, I've just, you know, I, I really, as a person enjoy visceral experiences and anything that the human body can sense ends up generating this visceral experience. And when I think, uh, of science, uh, I connect to it viscerally because of these experiences and that scratches an itch. I love how you point out too, that you just kind of fell into engineering because that's similar to me. I was just told by my dad, Go be an engineer. You can make money. In high school, we really don't have an opportunity to understand what engineering is. No. And they do a really poor explanation of it. Yeah. It's just like this magical thing. Yeah. And it's fascinating. Uh, I, I had to draw the line in the science world for me to things I could understand. And as it turns out, things that humans can generate are things that humans can understand, which means it's a skill. It can be taught, right? Because I can build a thing and show it to you. I can grab a pile of Legos and put it together and show it to you. And that to me is the most basic, like I I need that level of science in all of humanity. So uh, you'll, uh, I'll try not to jump up on a pedestal or should I say a soapbox about this too much about science acumen and science education in America. But the real key here is that if we want STEM fields to be accessible to everybody, we need to teach it in a way that's accessible to everybody. And if I can give a kid a tennis racket or a golf club or a baseball bat and teach them about the concept of center of percussion by finding the sweet spot, does your elbow hurt? No. Did the ball go real far? Yeah. Then you've done it right. Okay. So that's good. So you know what good means? So when I go and it's like, well, this is this M size star versus this other size star, what's good? Well, there is no good. It's just an observation. So you don't do anything with that sort of physics observation unless you're doing more astrophysics with that. So for the mechanical engineering, I mean, you do as much or little of the engineering as you want to, right? You either build a thing or you don't, or or you take somebody's idea and you make it a little bit better. So the uh, uh, transition of uh, stuff in the engineering world that's most fascinating in that intersection with Dungeons and Dragons was how did we go from catapults to ballista to trebuchet? How are these siege engines related? And they're related in the very same way that the steam engine and the internal combustion engine and Archimedes screw are related. They're the same progression of technology, just looked at differently. I have a couple things that uh, that you said that 
I wanted to latch onto. First of which is um, this idea that uh, you might want to stay away from a soapbox. <laughs> Just so we're clear, you don't need to steer clear of that soapbox at this, all. This podcast is built upon that soapbox. <laughs> right. You just need to let Steffi and James and I know to scoot over so there's room for yeah, it. We'll just get off. Right? So that's all. Honestly, well, I'm going to be one. I'm going to want to be in the crowd leading the chairs. So, <laughs> you know, you can have my okay. spot. I just wanted to be careful as educators that I'm not already treading on ground that's already been trod from people who do that. For me, I do mentorship, right? I don't do class education. So I get to mentor and that's the fun part is, you know, doing Hoosier science and engineering fair judging or doing Indiana state fair science judging and doing any of the stuff that's uh, related with that, this mentorship, uh, having interns, you know, being the person who mentors the interns at a company. I just, I love doing that stuff because that mentorship is really where uh, you get that applied science, right? And it stops being about worrying about academic dishonesty and all the other things that are right around the corner as we begin to develop chat GPT AI and stuff like that, that are writing, you know, trying to write papers for college kids or whatever. But you can either do it or you can't. Your machine either exists or it does not. It either works or it don't, you know, and it's really straightforward. Uh, and uh, I like that kind of cut and dried thing. And I think my, uh, my parents observing that in me that, uh, I had a kind of cut and dried view of the universe. They're like, well, if you kind of look at the universe through engineering, you'll probably find a lot more people who agree with you. And the truth is, yeah, there's a lot of stuff that's pretty cut and dry right up until the point where people get involved. So yeah, I was going to say, <laughs> so the other thing, Matt, that you said that has just been sitting in the back of my mind here, and I, I wanted to ask you about it was that when you were introducing yourself, you said, once upon a time ago, you were a licensed mechanical engineer. Oh yeah, professional engineering license. And then you went on to say that that didn't get you very far. What does one need a professional engineering license for? That's my first question. And then I have a comment about that. Yeah, yes. What was the purpose of, a, of an engineering license? Legally, the purpose is to have uh, a registration body that recognizes that you have a fundamental level of engineering skill. So getting a degree means that you, you jump through the hoops to get the grade. By the time I got out of Purdue, it was uh, fascinating, at least in my own curriculum. So from my own view then in the early 90s, going through mechanical engineering there, there was whatever, 10,000 students in freshman engineering. And they, they were undifferentiated engineering types, right? They're just like, you're all at the same farm here. And then uh, sophomore year is where you differentiate into a discipline. But what I found fascinating was uh, my freshman engineering class made this pretty clear. And that was like, hey, this, you know, everybody who's, and this is day one in the class, like everybody who is in the top 10% of your class, stand up, you know, in your high school class, stand up. And the whole class, you know, 900 students in lecture hall, everybody stands up. Like stay standing if you are, if you are valedictorian or salutatorian in your class. So I sit down and still half the place is standing. I'm like, I'm surrounded by a bunch of salutatorians and valedictorians. And they're like, cool. Now sit down. Everyone sit down. Take a look to your left and take a look to your right. Because one of those people are not going to be here next year. And every year thereafter, your class is going to get cut in half. So I had 900 student lecture hall filled lectures and those were like three sections a day so 2700 students a day taking chemistry 2700 students a day taking calculus and all this other stuff and then by the time i was a senior there was like 20 kids in each of my classes and of those only half of them 
would get the degree and do something with it. The other half turned on their heel and went and got an MBA because they're like, man, this engineering stuff's for the birds. I'm just getting this degree. (laughs) Then there's people who got the degree and then didn't use it. They immediately became like sales engineers or whatever. So another chunk is off to that. So it turns out that I'm like some fraction of what those people are. And I kept doing it. The PE license then takes that person, that little fraction that's left And then says, do you know what the hell you're doing to a safety standard? So the primary use there then is safety standards in the world of civil engineering. If you want to practice civil engineering, you basically need a PE in whatever state you live in. So the PE license board then says you take uh, EIT exam, engineering training exam while you're uh, just getting out of college. Generally, your senior year, you take this. And that's the benchmark exam called the fundamentals of engineering exam. And if you pass the FE, you get your EIT. And then after you get the EIT, you have to work in industry for at least five years. That means you have have to be working as an engineer for five years. You can't be doing sales or whatever. You actually have to be doing engineering. And then you have to get five other petitioners after this that agree that you should go get your PE license. And I think three of them are people you've had to either work for or work with or whatever. And so they have to be people who know you and weren't just like, oh yeah, you're a PE. Hey, how you doing? Let's have a cup of coffee and now sign off on this piece of paper. Like it's people who worked with you. So you do that for a safety standard in the world of engineering. So in the world of mechanical engineering, then unless you're doing HVAC, so that's uh, heating, ventilation, and air conditioning, uh, that affects human quality of life, human safety, in the sense of doing things like air filtration, air movement, uh, temperature regulation, all the things like that. And you want to make sure that you're not back in the day bleeding Freon into the building because people breathing Freon, I hear, is bad. So uh, we don't we don't use that stuff anymore. But, you know, there's other refrigerants. And uh, again, uh, I, I do not recommend breathing refrigerant, but that is the primary use of the license. I had it as a design engineer and I did it just because I wanted to see if I could. So I got the license and held it for 10 years because in the state of Indiana, you are not required to do continuing education. What? Yeah. You are not required to do continuing education credits at the time. So now you are, right? They changed the law correctly to make it. And that's when I stopped doing it because the continuing education credits my company wasn't going to pay for. And it was basically like, I don't know, three grand a year. And because I wasn't, I literally was not using the license to do anything. And for me, it was just like, oh, I can do this. I got a little PE license. Look at me. You know, (laughs) look at me. I'm the DCI. (laughs) Anyways. Let's talk about licensing for safety purposes, right? There are certain things in the state of Indiana. You need a license. You need to hold a license because of safety issues. For example, a professional engineer a physician, a dentist, a lawyer. For getting your hair done. Right? But you don't need one to hold a gun. No. You don't need one to conceal a weapon. This is a machine that was engineered to only kill. That is what that machine was designed for. Yeah. Right? It blows my freaking mind. I don't understand why we have some laws and not other laws when safety is involved. Anyway, that's me on my soapbox. But I would like to get back for a second now and talk about breathing things uh, that you shouldn't be breathing in because I think it's a nice segue toward what we want to talk about in our next block. Why don't we take a quick break and we will come back and talk about things you definitely should not be breathing. It is Editor James breaking in and you know i have been missing out on letting you guys know how you can help this podcast grow and reach new people so what i'm here to ask you to do today is to make sure you're 
rating and reviewing and liking and subscribing and ringing the bell and doing all those things that let the place that you're listening to this know that you like the Science Night podcast. So please go out, share our social medias if you like what we're doing. And also, you know, if you're involved in science and you want to be on the Science Night podcast, well, let me tell you, reach out to us. We're always looking for new guests to come on and talk about science and tell us what they do. So send us a message. We got our email on our website, cyanide.com, and you can always reach out to us on social media. And also, thank you so much for listening. And now back to some more SciComm. We are back and we're going to talk about some news and our story is absolutely still developing. So just to cover ourselves and the very likely event that something changes by the time you hear this, we are recording this a Tuesday, February 21st, 2023 at 927 a.m. So if anything happens in 20 minutes or later, I'm sorry we didn't hear about we're busy making magic for you. And if something major happens, maybe Editor James will pop in right now and say something. Thanks, James from the past. James from the future is breaking in to give you a little bit of an update. It seems that since we've recorded this episode, the coverage of the train derailment in East Palestine, Ohio, has shifted from the actual chemical disaster that has happened to political theater. So just like we all expected, this has become a talking point for political pundits all over the place, which I'm sure will have great outcomes for the people of Ohio. I now give it back to James from the past, where we talk about the actual story. On Friday, February 3rd, the 38 cars of a train, 11 of which carried hazardous materials, operated by the Norfolk Southern Railway, derailed in East Palestine, Ohio, or very near to it. The next day, emergency workers started a controlled burn to prevent an explosion in five cars carrying vinyl chloride, a chemical used in PVC manufacturing. And anytime there's a large amount of chemicals released into the environment, there is cause for alarm. And in fact, there's already been reports of thousands of dead fish and birds in this area. But the internet has done its thing and run with a bunch of misinformation and less than accurate news reporting. And it is just like readily available to every Facebook uncle out there. So we're going to try and clear some things out. But to make things a little more difficult... Norfolk Southern isn't doing a great job at making people trust them or feel like they're being informed, and the government isn't really saying much at all. So, we have a bit of an uphill climb to, like, sift through the things and actually talk about what's happening. So, let's do it. Or try. <laughs> we'll try our best. 
Well, I will say this. This is really just an unfortunate situation all around. And getting lost in the coverage is the toll on human mm-hmm. health mm-hmm. a little bit. I mean, I think that that's what is coming to the forefront a little bit more. But there's a reason why we need the EPA. Yeah. <laughs> and this is a case in point, right? So the last administration, uh, presidential administration, weakened the EPA um, and their ability to actually regulate all sorts of issues related to the environment. And I'm not saying that this is a result of that, but it certainly underscores why that's not a good thing to happen. It is horrific what is happening. And I, uh, I don't really have anything, other th- anything additional to say other than the fact that like, we have one planet here and we need to protect it. And you know, Ohio is the state right next to Indiana. Indiana already has the um, nation's most polluted airways and waterways. But this could potentially lead Ohio down that road as well. Um, and this is a state, Ohio is a state where you know, one of their rivers caught on fire in the um, 70s. Uh, that was 14 times, by the way, the Cuyahoga burn. Oh, yeah. wow. So I'm originally from Erie. Right. My brother was born in Akron. My parents lived in Geneva. My mom's from Pittsburgh. My dad's from Johnstown. So all of these places, we are Appalachian folk. And what you're telling is the exact same story mm-hmm. of Appalachia, right? This is the poorest mm-hmm. people that have always been shoved into this area. It's hard. It's mountainous. It's uh, annoying to live in. It's difficult to eke a living out of that soil. It's not particularly good land. And it is a story that is probably true in everywhere, uh, everywhere where it's remotish in America. I don't want to pretend that the story of Appalachia is unique. It's its own sort of horror story, but the long distrust of the government from whether it was revenuers back in the day to uh, the TVA now to the EPA, they, these people historically do not have a differentiation in their heads that the EPA is supposed to be on their side because they just see government. And Norfolk Southern's rep that didn't show up like they were supposed to there and like just bailed on the day. They they didn't want to get lynched by the 4,000 people living there in East Palestine. There there was not anything that they wanted to do because they knew these folks were used to shooting at revenuers. The whole story of the Hatfields and the McCoys is legendary. And those are Appalachian folk, man. And these folk tales come from these areas that these people have been poor and downtrodden for a very long time. So this isn't new. If you look at this from even when we started collecting EPA information in the 50s about the water table and stuff, and we evaluate the water quality, whether it's the rust belt, and we look at the amount of lead in the water, and the fact that I've got friends that live in Pittsburgh, they're like, hey, you can swim in the Monongahela today, but they're my age. And they're like, I mean, I'm never going to swim in the Mon. Right. There's just them. Right. They're like, I remember when you couldn't see an inch into that water, you know, and they're like, it's clear and better today. And it's probably the best it's ever been, but it's still not good, man. Yeah. It's not that the Cuyahoga burned once. It's that it burned 14 times, man. we, We just continue to not learn our lesson here because the people who profit from this namely the people who exploited these Appalachians in the industrial age 100 to 130 years ago, your Carnegie's, your, your, you know, your people, whether it's a standard oil or anything else that had everything to do with people pillaging 
all the natural resources in the area and exploiting the people, that just continues. And the first slap in the face is the $1,000 they send them. And then the second slap in the face is the $25,000 they send them. Basically, uh, here's a Subway sandwich, as uh, Stephen Colbert put it. You know, here's a Subway sandwich for the town. I'm like, oh my God. So this is what it's like. And it's not that it's one thing after another. It's literally the same thing over and over. Right. It's just different waves of the same problem, yep. right? It's historical, it's systemic. And I just wanted to kind of like put a put an extra level to Jason and Matt talking about how it's distrust in the government, but this is an area of historic getting taken advantage of by corporations. Oh, especially corporations, yeah. The exploitation. Yep. Yeah. If there is a corporation in this area, it has exploited the local population. You can look at Pullman strikes. You can look at coal companies. You can look at now Norfolk Southern Rail. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. Monongahela, the Monon, right? I mean, even the Monon that's here in Indiana, that's all run by those same people. Those all the... (laughs) Those tight railroad tycoons, man. There was a whole game called Monopoly about it. That's why they had the railroads as part of it. The railroads paid money. And the more railroads you owned, the more money it paid. This has not changed in a century. Right. And yet we still somehow have one of the worst rail systems when it comes to man. passenger travel in yeah, the world. A thousand yeah. derailments a year. Pete Buttigieg was like, oh, yeah, you know, I mean, we have a thousand derailments a year, so it's not a big deal. I'm like, dude. Did you just hear your words? Did you hear the words coming out of your mouth? We just have derailments. How many other countries can report that many derailments per unit capita of track line? Yeah, we're just not investing in the infrastructure to keep it safe. To make, well, actually, to make it safe in the first place. I get so. that we're big and spread out, but if you want to move heavy things for cheap, that's the way you do it. Let's talk about kind of the specifics of, of what's happening here. So there was like a big fire, and there was also chemicals leaching into the water table. So we have like this double whammy of aerosolized carcinogen, but then also non-aerosolized carcinogen. Uh, And that aerosolized carcinogen is coming down all over the region in the form of polluted rain. Um, So, you know, there's like a lot of stories about how this is. and, And there's like a really at the time. I thought a really great, great Twitter feed that was talking about how this is like a localized incident and everything. And then the fire started and all of a sudden this is no longer localized to the like 30 mile radius where we have to worry about the initial runoff. Um, And that's kind of when things got quiet, right? So we have these pretty dramatic images of, a tower of flame and the blackest, darkest smoke you've ever seen in your entire life. It's wild. And then the the government led by Norfolk Southern saying like, yeah, no, this was the safe way to deal with this because the alternative is an explosion. If that's the case, then, you know, I kind of buy that because you don't want an uncontrolled explosion. But I don't, I also don't know, is that actually the safest way? You know what I mean? Like, are there, were there other ways to have dealt with this? I don't know. So vinyl chloride is what we're talking about here. For those unfamiliar, vinyl chloride is the myrrh used to make polyvinyl chloride or PVC. And that's everything from shower curtains to schedule 40 piping in your house, right? And we like vinyl because it's uh, sort of cheap and easy and it has a pretty reasonable chemical resistance and especially useful for wastewater processing and things like that. All of your polymers 
and all of the MERS start off with these carbon chains. So I've got a double carbon bond. I've got some hydrogens hanging off of there. So I got three hydrogens and then that fourth hydrogen is being replaced by a chlorine. And that's this vinyl chloride monomer, VCM or VC, depending on, uh, you know, who you're talking to, but it, it's carcinogenic and flammable, right? And, it, and it's problematic. This is one of the reasons why firemen are specially trained to deal with PVC fires is because of the fact that when PVC itself burns, it's giving off hydrochloric acid as a gas. So here's the problem. The problem is that when you store vinyl chloride, you have to store it as a liquid. And when you store it as a liquid, you have like an inner tank and an outer tank, and you're supposed to have like nitrogen or something in between to keep the whole thing from going up. Once that starts leaking, you know it's leaking. And there's like a gauge or whatever. It's like, hey, this is leaking. This is bad. We've got to do something with it. And it will react. And by react, I mean react violently in the terms of oxidation with anything from like wet iron, which I guess railways, you know, they're kind of made with iron and uh, steel and stuff like that. <laughs> the thing that blows my mind then, it crashed and it was like two days from what I can tell from the timeline. It's sitting there just kind of fuming or cooking or doing whatever for a couple of days before like, yeah, we got to set this on fire. So the problem is then when you look at what it can do, anything from, you know, um, Reynolds uh, phenomenon to acroosteolysis, uh, if I'm saying that right, acroosteolysis. Yes, that's the, <laughs> it's bad for your bones. Um, <laughs> sorry, I'm a, a obviously engineer way out of my depth here, but it's, it's bad. And by to try to tell people how bad this is and trying to do stuff with it is that they say, oh yeah, if you get between like a thousand to 8,000 parts per million, you're going to get dizziness. You're going to have acute nausea, visual disturbances, headaches. So this is the stuff that people are reporting, like ataxia yeah. all the way up to, you know, 12, uh, when you get above 12,000 parts per million, you're just killing stuff. Stuff's just dying. Yeah. So, so what's the bottom limit? And when you look at the bottom limit, when you have the people from the industry and not here in the U.S., but this is definitely in the uh, 1969 presentation given in Japan, that's uh, P.L. Uh, Viola, a uh, European researcher working for the European VC industry, said that every monomer used in the VC manufacture is hazardous, right? And the findings in rats at concentrations as low as four to ten parts per million were things that they could show, right? And liver damage in rats from just four to 10 parts per million. So if I take a look at the volume of 11 rail cars that might've been full of this stuff and I dump that into a river, that's a different dilution thing than burning it off and sending all the other stuff. And so if you go and you look at the maps from, you know, the EPA air quality thing blowing over Pennsylvania or whatever you can see, uh, and you can dial back in those days, the air quality after the fifth uh, through like the ninth is just atrocious because it's like yeah. Yeah. the whole Northeast coast like is everywhere. like, hey guys, guess, guess what we set on fire here in Ohio, <laughs> you know, and it's coming yep. your way because that's the way the jet stream moves. But the water goes the other way. It's heading towards the Mississippi. So it's not just how much is it or is it bad? It's like for how long? and what right. minimal concentration mm -hmm. is required and just add that on top of all the things we were talking about before of all the other pollutants that are still in the water. And we're not really holding the companies accountable for this. You slap them with some fines and then they pay it and then they keep on going. It's a cost of doing business. A $58 billion company there spending thousands of dollars to solve, solve the problem, even millions of dollars, sounds like a ridiculously good ROI. Mm -hmm. Oh, for sure. All they need is Subway sandwiches, yeah. right? I mean, <laughs> that's, that's literally right. what it is. I mean, we do have to do the caveat of 
we don't know where this story is going to go. We yeah. don't know what's going to come from this. Maybe, maybe we can be a, we can keep our fingers crossed and think that this is going to want be the one that breaks that systemic chain. I'm, I'm not going to cross them too hard. Let's be real. When I was growing up, it was uh, hexavalent chromium, right? The whole story of Aaron Brockovich. We all thought that that was finally, you know, PG and E, man. Those guys suffered some consequences. Yeah, no, they didn't. <laughs> Or even like the Exxon Valdez uh, crash. That was like, that's taught in in history books in the 90s is like, this is when corporate greed was taken care of. No, we still make oil collecting boom. That's like a product now. Like, oh, they're like, oh, problem solved. We could just keep cleaning up our messes. We don't have to stop making the messes. We just, it's cheaper to clean up a mess after it happens than it is in preventing it as far as they're concerned. Like, well, gosh, me being safer cost me money all the time. Yeah, and one of the articles I read about this, they said this accident is a result of compromised safety measures and reduced workforces, which is part of the effort to boost the railroad's company profits. So, mm-hmm. Sure. What happens yeah. if I have to report my number? Where do I set the limit, right? How many hazardous cars per train? Like if I have yeah. 10 hazardous cars and that's one train and that train is only 10 cars long, then it looks like a really bad train. But if I have 150 cars and only 11 of them are carrying hazardous substances, then suddenly percentage wise, it looks great. Not that the physics of moving 150 cars in one train is right good. Uh, or even appreciable. It's under-engined, it's under-manned, it's under-staffed, it's under-repaired, uh, it's under-maintained. I mean, go look at your bridges. Oh. The last caveat I want to throw onto this is, you know, we didn't talk about the misinformation and the, the Facebook crap that's uh, associated with this story as well. Just make sure you're getting your news stories from reputable sources and... Make sure you're getting up-to-date information on this particular one. Go to the bottom of the story and look for the updates. You've come to the end of another edition of the Science Night Podcast, but we've got plenty more coming your way, so be sure to follow us on social media. If you want to follow me, I'm at James underscore read three on Twitter, where you can see me forget all about football and just re- get ready to get my heart broken by the Philadelphia Phillies all over again. Steffi, where can everybody find and follow you? You can find me on Twitter at Steffi Deem and Instagram at Starshipin. I'm not going to talk about sports unless it's RuPaul's Drag Race and maybe building a Tokamak. Oh, I thought you were like a sports gal now that you're on the Big Ten Network. Oh, and I've been on the Big Ten Network. There's a commercial. Watch me. Jason, where can everyone find you? Just be incessantly talking about the Kansas City Chiefs breaking my hearts and ruining my dreams. You can find me on Twitter at OregonJM or in Indianapolis at Hoagies and Hops eating cheesesteaks with all the Philadelphia Eagles oh, it fans. It looks so good. It looks so good and it tastes so bad from the tears. And Matt, where can everybody keep up to date with the things that you're doing? Well, hopefully future episodes of Science Night, if I've done this well. And then uh, I try to collaborate as much as I can with the folks at Indiana Sciences. Uh, So uh, I try to do uh, some talks at Gen Con every year and then uh, Starbase Indy. So if if you're getting your nerd on, I'll uh, see you around Indianapolis. You can follow the show at Cyanite Pod and visit our home on the web, Cyanite.com, for past episodes, the people we talk to, and the stories we talk about, and, of course, our merch. There is a lot going on, and you can find it at Cyanite.com. We'll be back in two weeks with a new episode, but until then, have a great night. The Science Night Podcast is a proud member of the River Power Podcast Mill. 
To find out more about our shows, go to riverpower.xyz. That's for you, James. Jason. Jason. Hey, how are you going to do that the week after the Kelsey Bowl? That's exactly why I did it. Those two brothers brought America together.